Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's... Yeah, <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. You might have to be of a certain vintage to get this one, but does anyone remember Didier Baptiste? Oh, yeah. A cultured French centre half of the late 90s. I think, think he was a full back, actually, possibly a wing back. Oh. Uh, of the late 90s, Liverpool were widely reported to be on the verge of signing for three and a half million pounds. The only snag being that Didier Baptiste, Ken, as you seem to be aware, did not actually exist. Hello and welcome to Monday Second Captain's Podcast. Well, I dispute that, Owen. He did exist. He did exist within the rarefied confines of. Harchester United, <laughs> yeah, the fictional team at the centre of Sky's Dream Team programme. It didn't stop a bunch of national newspapers in the UK, as well as Liverpool's club call service, again, certain vintage, yeah. that the club were going to splash out in this French international. On the show, Baptiste was portrayed as a Monaco player who was mulling over the possibility of moving to the Premier League. He was playing a little bit of hardball with Harchester, you see, by telling them that he was already attracting interest from a, clu- a big club managed by a Frenchman. Yeah. Viewers were left to wonder, hmm, is he talking about Arsenal under Wenger or Liverpool, then under the management of Gerard Houdier? And somehow this fictional story from a fictional club ended up being reported as fact. I'm glad you remember Didier Baptiste. Yeah. Look, Alan, you got to think about it in terms of a truffle pig. A truffle pig is out there uh, snorting, <laughs> sniffling around in the mud, looking for truffles. Now, I suppose they've got extremely sensitive uh, noses, probably good at sniffing out truffles, but I wonder, do they ever sniff out something that maybe smells a bit like a truffle? They kind of <laughs> nose the earth aside and uncover something which maybe it, maybe it is a truffle, maybe it isn't. Maybe something that smells a bit like a truffle. Journalists are a lot like that. For instance, Owen, <laughs> this is the first time I've told you, and, and I've, I feel a bit embarrassed to, to admit this, but I, I'm afraid to report that I've missed an opportunity. The other day, I was contacted by a producer from a national radio station in the United Kingdom. Okay. Asking me if I would uh, be willing to... Hang on, let me see. Here we are. You can get it ready there. Yeah. Uh, uh, so it said, Hi, I am X from Y Radio. Um, I work as the setup producer for our show. Blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if we could speak to you about the sport of Bo Taoshi on Saturday's 29th of July. Sorry, what? No. <laughs> we would talk about the semantics of the sport and its origins, if that would be okay. Gives the time of the interview and blah, 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 and who, who we'd be speaking to. So I thought, what? I thought, Bo Taoshi? What is, what is this? Bo Taoshi, it turns out, is, is a kind of a Japanese uh, sport in which teams of 150 compete to lower the other team's pole. There's, a, there's, there's poles. Look, I, I, I literally only know what I saw from Wikipedia when I Googled Botarishi. Why did you become the go-to guy on this from a uh, UK radio station? Owen, I'll tell you this. 
What I should have said in response to this message was, certainly. Absolutely, you've got the right man. <laughs> I'm putting in some Japanese characters then, you know, yeah. as, as though to wish him, wish him well. That's what I should have done. But well, I'm mean, good for your profile in the UK. So. I didn't have the presence of mind to do that. Instead, I responded, hi, I have never heard of Bo Taoshi. Maybe you have me mixed up with somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> Ken Birdie, perhaps? Hi, mate. Perhaps I have. I just saw you build as a Japanese sports expert and thought I'd give you a try. <laughs> if you haven't heard of it, not to worry. Bit of a long shot idea. One of my presenters wants me to chase up. Thanks for getting back to me. So I thought, what? So, I, so my next question was, again, maybe, I, maybe at this point it wasn't too late to salvage it. Maybe I, having said I've never heard of Botau, she was a, was a false move right at the beginning. I should have just said, absolutely, I'm your man. Mm. You know, and then constructed a... You know, what I was You're say. a bright guy, Ken. You'd have learned what you needed to learn that. about Bo Taoshi. I, I Instead, I said, where was I billed as a Japanese sports expert? And the response came, a tweet by second captains. <laughs> really? And I thought, ah, okay. I think I remember that now. This was, uh, this was when we were, uh, maybe a month or two ago, when we were talking about um, fan behavior or certain things. And I, I was in Japan uh, 15 years ago for the World Cup and was at a couple of matches there and had the chance to see Japanese crowds in 2002, their behavior at matches, and I think I offered some opinions as to how they would be likely. Was it something to do with the Rugby World Cup being in Japan? Yes. And how partisan the crowds were likely to be? I anyway, I, I, said, I, I made a couple of sweeping generalizations about Japanese culture based on Japan, the... Japan, South Africa. Japan, South Africa? You had been at the Japan, South Africa yeah, game? Yeah, I, I was, although that was a bit different. There was a lot of Eng English people there who just wanted South Africa to lose. I mean, there were plenty of Japanese people as well. Uh, to be fair, who, who seemed to overcome with emotions, really almost express anything. They were just dazed. They were like, oh. But anyway, I think, the, I think Simon then tweeted something which, which referred to me as a Japanese sports expert, and nothing more was thought of it until <laughs> nosing around the internet a few weeks later. His nose is honestly hitting the microphone, physically hitting the microphone. Uh, mm, what's that? That smells interesting. Japanese sports expert. I mean, if you, if you search on Twitter for Japanese sports expert, I guess that will, that will come up. Well, maybe I should have backed myself. Maybe I should have backed myself. But look, that's, that is an example, I would say, of an innocent mistake. Mm -hmm. You know, it was like he saw what Simon put out, which was to say fake news. Well, to be more precise, false information. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's not... To be even more precise, a jokey tagline for the show. I know, but is it, you know, what's a joke? What's a joke? What's not real? I mean, if you're, if you're looking at this a couple of months later, you don't really know what, what, what angle it's coming from. You just see it. You take it at face value. Yeah. People, are, people aren't going around the world peering at everything going, I wonder, is this a joke? Maybe it'd be better if we were. Maybe that, that kind of skepticism is actually badly needed. You know, as we walk around, there's a lot of things when you, when you look at them and you think, could this be a joke that you might, you, you might start to think, yeah, th this must be a joke, actually. It's too stupid to be real. You know what uranium is, right? <laughs> I mean, there is, there is that. But, but that kind of skepticism is a very wearisome uh, way to look at things. You, you could use up a lot of energy and not getting very far, questioning everything that you see. So for now, we're still in that sort of phase. We haven't quite made the necessary adjustments to our brain. For now... We're still in the sort of see it and believe it kind of uh, mode. Um, maybe that's going to change as we realize actually anything we see is as likely, maybe more likely to be false than true. But uh, for the moment, we're still, if you see someone billed as a Japanese sports expert, why would somebody falsely claim that they were an expert in Japanese sports? If, if you want to talk about Botaoshi, it looks like this person might actually be a good possibility. Well, the thing is that if... It seems as though people believe what they want to believe, which is uh, a phenomenon at the centre of the whole fake news concept. And Rory Smith has done a great piece for the New York Times in which he argues that the whole concept of fake news that we hear about on a daily basis now was actually born out of football transfer stories, or at least we see a lot of the same characteristics in the world of football. And one in particular, one transfer that's not a million miles from the Didier Baptiste example, Mazal Bugdov. I remember Mazal Bugdov? Oh, yeah. Moldovan international in back in 2008, who was dreamed up by Galway-based journalist Declan Varley, who I think we spoke to years, years ago about this particular caper. We did. We spoke to him a, at a roadshow down in uh, Galway. So he was essentially, he was working on this kind of stuff anyway, working on transfer news and getting repeatedly... I'm not sure if he was working on it or if he was just an Arsenal oh, fan. Oh, an Arsenal fan, who, sorry. Who was, who was following it with interest. Yeah, following like, with interest. Uh, in, the, in the addicted way that... 
you know. And kind of came to the realization there's a lot of nonsense in here. I know how to expose the amount of crap that's in this in this form of journalism, and that is by making up a character and inserting him into various storylines, such as uh, a link to the great Arsenal Football Club, mm. which was jumped on by many people. It was the hoax was successful, you would say. Uh, Mazal Bugdov was once ranked at number 30 again in a list that the Times in the UK put out of 50 rising stars. Moldova's finest, the 16-year-old attacker, has been strongly linked with a move to Arsenal, work permit permitting, and he's been linked with plenty of other top clubs as well. <laughs> but he ha- well, he was, yeah, it's true. Yeah. He was linked, he just didn't exist. Yeah. I mean, there there have been quite a few uh, of these uh, these things, more and more sort of in recent years. Rory's piece talks about, uh, for instance, uh, or mentions at least Duncan Jenkins, mm-hmm. who was a fictional journalist uh, invented by uh, Sean Cummins, who was a Liverpool fan, who um, I think what Sean used to do is he used to see the team, uh, he used to see the team, Liverpool team posted on some forum and like would put it out on Twitter and people would be like, it's the, that is the team because the team was going up on this forum. I mean, he essentially was taking it off there, putting it, and people were like, oh, this guy is in the know. <laughs> and the Liverpool's then director of communications became obsessed by oh, yeah. by, <laughs> by Duncan Jenkins, this this mole. But I mean, if you, if you read the guy's actual tweet stream if you read duncan jenkins's twitter feed it was it was totally farcical you know what i mean it was it was you know if you, if you had had the skepticism is this a joke within two seconds you're like of course this is a joke you know this isn't real well people are so hungry for news about their football team and scoops about their football right team up to the then, to the then director of communications who 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 uh, <laughs> yeah, forget to, about the fans he went on a mole hunt uh that's that he's no longer the director of communications at partnership with the club and ended, ended shortly thereafter but um you know these sorts of things i mean i i remember the forest echo new i mean forest echo news don't seem to be so much of a thing in recent times but they were kind of putting out lots of fake stuff on twitter fake transfer rumors fake stories um i think one of them was that the, the, there had been a plane crash in egypt that air cantona was supposed to be aboard you know that so this is this was kind of shared a lot agent confirms cantona on down mm. plane I remember being in Marseille the night of England against Russia. I remember there'd been all this violence uh, between England and Russia uh, fans. And uh, one of the Forest Echo News kind of um, reporters or accounts put out a tweet claiming that someone had been pushed onto the tracks in the subway system and, and, and had been killed, which I remember sitting in the stadiums directly after that game, which if you recall, had ended with a big riot uh, as the Russian fans sort of charged the England fans and pushed them out and stole all their flags. Um, and obviously there'd been a really bad atmosphere in the town, a lot of violence, tear gas, you know, people getting beaten up. And now some, someone, uh, suddenly an England fan has been killed. That's like, I mean, everyone was looking at that going, this is, this is a disaster. And then you, there was no real way to confirm it because everyone's kind of seeing the same news in a way like i mean you ask volunteers and marseille what's the story is that if they close down the trains is 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 this real and they go we hear you know someone's been killed and you know nobody had been killed but everybody this, this sort of news had disseminated there's no way to tell or to track it really to its source to confirm that it's true they just put this out there and suddenly everybody thought this was the case and everyone was you know people were getting scared i mean i was really worried what's this going to be like getting back into town so here you had a story, an example of a story, a fake story, which had bad consequences for the people who were there at the time. You know, a lot of this stuff you could say is ultimately, it's harmless, you know? Who cares? Like Mazel Bugdov, it's, kind of, it's a prank at the expense of the media, you know, it's a, or the, 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 the Times. Prince, it's, you know, you expect everything in the Times. It's got the imprimatur of the Times, and actually it's just, you know, it's just their best guess. It's just their best guess. I mean, it is something you'll see if you if you ever read a story in a newspaper which which involves something you, by coincidence, happen to have actual knowledge of. It's hilarious how wrong it always is. <laughs> you know, there's always an inaccuracy. The person writing the story uh, is probably doing their best to get the story right as far as they can they can tell, which is not always the case. Sometimes a person writing the story is is putting a a slant or a spin on it that they want to put on for some reason that maybe you don't know about. But, you know, usually they are trying to... There's, there's no reason for them to necessarily lie. They're trying to get the story as accurate as they can. But nevertheless, 
uh, it is difficult to record things accurately and different people see things different ways. So always the media is kind of a best guess in, in the most generous possible light. Um, but now uh, maybe the, well, the story that we're, that we're doing later with Rory is kind of um, related to some of these themes we've been talking yeah, about. Yeah, looking forward to that. We had a fun week in the World Service last week. Donald O'Cusack, Kevin McStay, Jenny Murphy, Ailish Egan from the Women's World Cup team. They were all in. We broke down the racial element of the McGregor-Mayweather build-up. And Richie Sadler's latest guest on the player's chair was the ex-Ireland goalkeeper David Ford, who spoke to Richie about punching a teammate, squaring up to a manager, finding some peace later in his career, and a little bit about boozing sessions with the Irish team. Around the Ireland squad, becoming a non-drinker, how did you negotiate that? Because I know from my brief time there, from speaking to players there, Mm -hmm. drinking is part of it. Absolutely. And like me as well, when when I first got into that team, I knew it was so wrong. I knew that behaviour was wrong. Deep down, I knew this isn't actually right here, what we're actually... Doing. The amount of drinking. Yeah, exactly. Do you know what? The yeah. only night I think I ever trained hungover was the first training session I had with the Ireland senior team. Mm-hmm. Now, if you'd have told me as a kid or as an adult at any point in my life, I said, you know what? You, you'll never drink the night before training at Millwall, but because of peer pressure, you'll go out and get plastered the night before your first training session. That's what I did. We met up on a Saturday. Yeah. The text <laughs> flew around yeah. the previous week. Lads, yeah. bring your going out clothes. <laughs> all into Lily's on the, on the, fr- on the Saturday night. Yeah. And we trained the next morning. And it was actually great crack because yeah. most of us were half cut. Yeah. But again, I had that lingering thing in my head going, I didn't think it would be like this. Yeah, there you go. That's David Ford in the player's chair. If you sign up now, you get access to all of Richie's brilliant interviews and, of course, every episode of the podcast Full Stop since we launched the World Service in February. It only costs a fiver a month plus fat. And details are on secondcaptains.com. Let's report on a little bit of sport, Ken. Transfer news, I'd imagine. Yeah, there's a good bit of transfer news going on. Um, some fake, some real. Mostly fake. <laughs> um, the... As far as I can see, if there was a story that I think is probably real, it's Raphael Honigstein's report uh, today that uh, uh, Orbi Leipzig have uh, and have confirmed to him that they're they're not interested in selling Naby Keita, their uh, midfielder who Liverpool have been, you know, gazing helplessly through the the window of the sort of Fortnum and Mason. They're like an urchin <laughs> with their faces pressed to the window. Naby Keita's in the window and they just can't... There's nothing they can do. Except it's a bit of a strange situation because this is actually a millionaire urchin. Uh, very rich. Has all the money. Can buy it. Just not interested in selling. Sorry, we don't want your sticking money. Uh, this is the situation facing Liverpool Football Club as they go around trying to... Trying to uh, persuade other other teams to take the money. Leipzig saying, no, sorry, um, this guy is too good. I know we there had been a suggestion maybe if you bid 80 million euros, you might, might accept it. Um, but actually, we decided we'd rather have a season with him in the Champions League and then sell him next season for his release clause. I mean, his, his release clause, which activates um, next season, is worth, what, 50, 50 million or so. Um so he would be uh, available next season for a cheaper price than, well, the, the price that he's not going to be sold for, <laughs> apparently. Uh, I think if Liverpool could buy him, they would. Um, but it's like Klopp has been saying, you know, if I could decide alone, we'd be complete from the last day of last, last season. Done. There's the new team. Thank you very much. All the rest. But that is dreamland. Um, he's basically saying, look, uh, you know, I, I imagine it's annoying for fans. They think, oh, my God, nothing happens here. Everything happens there. Uh, but we're working really hard. Uh, going out to Asia and all that stuff. If I could decide alone, we'd already have them. But it's not possible anymore. It probably won't be possible again in the world, especially in England. Why should I moan about it? He's talking about like how there's still deals in the Bundesliga for five million. You know, players moving between clubs it just doesn't happen in England um, because everybody's got too much money now. And um, even though it's of the same standard, you know, if Liverpool tried to sign these players, it wouldn't be five million. It would be thirty million <laughs> um, for Naby Keita. So. Uh, they they are looking at another frustrating summer at the moment. Um, the two big targets that they had were Keita and Virgil van Dijk. Well, also Mohamed Salah, who they eventually got, paying handsomely to, to sign him from Roma. Um, but they've had to apologise for, you know, flirting with Virgil van Dijk. 
and now they seem to be told that their other major target isn't for sale. Good luck to him next year, um, still being at the top of the queue when the rush comes to sign him for his, uh, for his reduced fee. So, um, uh, difficult for them. Uh, Manchester United, uh, they're over in America at the moment. You'll see lots of photos of uh, them hanging out with Game of Thrones actors. When I say Game of Thrones actors, I mean the guy who plays uh, Samuel Tarly. Yeah. And then the guy who plays Gendry. Do you know Gendry? I can't remember Gendry. Yeah. Is that the point? Imagine, well, well, imagine turning up to meet Man United. You're like, well, we're a couple of Game of Thrones actors, and I suppose there's probably a few Game of Thrones fans. I mean, I bet Juan Mata watches Game of Thrones, or you know, I'm sure there are some players that do watch it. Why Juan Mata? I just say Mata has definitely watched it. I mean, I don't know who else. There's, Herrera. Yeah, probably Herrera. To be I don't fair. know why we're picking these players. Spanish, Spanish players? players. Yeah, I don't know. That I'd say they're they're probably fans, and they they do a lot of traveling. You know, they've they've got to kill a few hours and. They've probably been through again. I'd say Rooney probably watched it. He yeah. doesn't play for them anymore. Um, he saw his goal, by the way. Rooney for Everton, his first one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So just the same as the Arsenal goal. Mm-hmm. Pretty pretty amazing. I wonder if uh, it would be interesting. He, he made some interesting comments, actually, Rooney. Go on. Um, Are we leaving the Game of Thrones point before its completion? Well, just just I thought, imagine you, you turn up as, oh, I'm a Game of Thrones actor, and even Juan Mata is kind of squinting at you going, are you sure? Ah, oh, Samuel. Samuel is a reasonable. Oh character, yeah, no him, but but, but Gendry, the other guy, yeah, he hasn't been in for ages. Gendry, he's, he's been. Um, uh, I say Gendry. It could even be Gendry. Owen. I mean, that's how it's spelled. But you know, he, oh, this guy, yeah, the blacksmith's son. That's right. Oh, is he the blacksmith's son though? Owen? Oh, there could be a bit of doubt over. Yeah, that. or is his father from it? No, let's not spoil yeah. anything for anybody. Um. But having but turning up and having to say no, I am in the show. Uh, I have actually been a you know major sort of you know subterranean character. Remember in some series ways. two? No, I, nobody remembers series two. <laughs> I'm important in, in how the plot is going to sort of come all the <laughs> way back around to the beginning. But anyway, um, what was I? Oh, then you were moving on to Rooney. Yeah. Oh, Rooney. Rooney says. There are standards that you have to keep when you're at Manchester United. That came from the manager, Sir Alex Ferguson, when I went to United. It was then passed down through the dressing room by the likes of Giggsy, Gary Neville and Scolesy. Over the last few years, it was down to me and Michael Carrick to keep the new players maintaining those standards. That became more difficult over the last few years. With some of the players who joined the club, there are traditions at United that have to be maintained. It's become harder, but that's not my problem anymore. I'm just ecstatic to be back at everything. <laughs> so, yeah, I wonder too um, who he was talking about. Uh, who who these players were? I mean, I suppose there's been there've been a few. Someone like Angel Di Maria springs to mind. You know, he didn't really didn't really do a lot when he joined. I mean, a huge transfer fee, best player in the Champions League final the season the the month or the couple of months before he joined, and just really sank without trace. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it does seem a sort of general criticism. I don't think it went down too well with Manchester United fans, many of whom would have viewed Rooney himself. As personifying the uh, slip in standards, you know, I mean, he was a player who Alex Ferguson tried to get rid of, obviously, in, in his last, and just ran out of time in the end, Fergie, uh, in terms of that. And then there was the whole, as we were talking about last year, remember the whole England uh, thing where he went to the wedding. He just he went to the wedding that happened to be on in the hotel, and there was these photos of him and the playing piano tabloids playing piano and with kind of red wine face. You know, and and uh, so so these kinds of things get dredged up when uh, when you make a comment about other people not having the right sort of standards. Um, as for the current manager uh, of Manchester United, he <laughs> there was a funny article written by Barney Roney about um, Mourinho's addiction to tall players, a team that we've talked about before. Um, Mourinho's Potsdam Giants. Uh, he obviously has signed Lukaku. Um, as Barney Roney uh, points out, um, that Mourinho basically only signs uh, tall players. He basically only signs tall people. Today, his major first team buys the United have been Romelu Rom- Lukaku, six foot three, Ibrahimovic six foot five, Pogba six foot three, Lindelof six foot two, and Mkhitaryan five foot eleven. He doesn't seem to trust Mkhitaryan much. Probably coincidence. He 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 makes the point that um, this is this is quite unusual 
for you know, Mourinho is an unusual case here. He is out to the extreme of um, football managers. Uh, you know, if you, if you look at United's first eleven, or pick a you can pick a first eleven at United where the the average height is six two. I mean, I, I actually remember even thinking this at the Europa League final. This is a this is a big team. You know, there's a lot mm. of tall guys here. Um, and Mourinho, of course, in the middle of it all, like almost a little sprite, you know, <laughs> uh, not quite the same sort of build. But um, Barney makes the point, OK, you've got a, a team with an average height of six foot two, but that's quite it, it's not as though teams who are six foot two on average are, you know, statistically the best teams. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing to suggest that that really gives you a better chance of winning the league. You know, the first Premier League team, as he points out, had an average height of five foot eleven, first Premier League winning team, uh, which is pretty much the same height as the last you know if you average out the last couple they're all kind of around the same yeah. height there's, there's no real sense in which height appears to confer an obvious advantage to how good I mean clearly it, it makes you better at, at set pieces you know it, it gives you a bit of an edge at set pieces but there's no suggestion that it, it makes you more likely to win the game over or to win a title it's just something that Mourinho thinks I mean Barney does suggest that maybe it has to do with the fact that he, his idea of how the game should be played does involve breaking it down into little fixed phases of play, set pieces, and, you know... I would have uh, thought there is a part of that, because you sort of skimmed over the set pieces element there, but not just a, it's how he feels games can be won and lost, but it's when a team concedes a goal at a set piece, mm. whatever bit scoring, when they concede a goal at a set piece, straight away you're judging... The black way the eye. team is set up. Black eye for the manager. Yeah, it's a black eye for the manager. It's a bit of a blow to the manager's ego, mm. I would I would say. Mm. Uh, so that there could be a part of it there. Well, I, whatever we're going to do, we're not going to be a team that concedes many goals from set pieces because that's kind of embarrassing if it does happen. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I, I guess they are well equipped to defend set pieces. It all comes down to the organization now, Owen, because the beef, the muscle, is certainly there. <laughs> it's all just about how the little how the little uh, things are set up on the chalkboard now. Um, but the good news... There won't be room on that chalkboard for all these big men. It's um, just the, the space on the chalkboard is going to run out. It's like, like this is Lukaku. Ah, no, you, you can represent them by the, a disc the same size as... You know, Juan Mata's disc is the same as Lukaku's disc, you know? Just Juan Mata's one is over on the bench. For <laughs> um, now, uh, the good news uh, for fans of Marcus Rashford... Is not only that he scored a couple of goals in United's preseason friendly, a couple of nice little finishes running through one on one, but also that he has grown three centimeters since Jose what? Mourinho arrived at the club yeah. 13 months ago. He's already taller than when I arrived, says Mourinho. Three, he's three centimeters taller. Put on some muscle without any kind of specific work because his speed is his most important quality. So Rashford's got to be nudging up at the six foot mark at this stage, which I think might just about be enough to. Earn him, uh, earn him a chance, a chance to uh, to win himself another chance to be uh, a part of this team going forward. The other news about uh, United has to do with David de Gea, who, um, who, according to Mark Ogden uh, at ESPN, who Mark Ogden has been has been covering Manchester United for for a good few years, um, he reckons that actually. Madrid do want to sign David De Gea, mm -hmm. and Manchester United are well aware of this. But their attitude is, you don't have the money, Real Madrid. You do not have the money. This is this is how cruelly the tables have turned. You want it to be one way, but it's the other way. You know, you're gonna come and what are you what are you what are you gonna pay us for? With David, what are you gonna pay us with for David De Gea? We didn't give you the money for for uh, Morata. You can't sell James Rodriguez. Had to let him go to Bayern on a loan. You know, you can't find buyers for the, for the players, and now you can't afford our goalkeeper. So do your worst, but uh, we doubt that you're going to be able to come up with the with the money. Um, still, though, it is a little bit of a slightly, you know, it's a dread. Could they come up with 50 or 60 million pounds at the, I'd say. Probably. They usually are able to, aren't they? They find a way, Real Madrid. It's one of the great things about that. They managed to find a, a solution. Um, so I don't know. We will see that, but it looks as though... It looks as though there's still there's still some doubt there so as to whether he'll be uh, sticking around. But uh, okay, yeah, that's it for today's report and sport.
he agrees with plenty. Just it's always who's saying it. It's never what's actually said. Ninety percent of anything is who's saying this, and ten percent is what are they actually saying. So the ninety percent in Giles' case is oh, it's that twat. John is the best football brain in the world. Things on an annoying twat. But if you're talking about the, the, the press, which you're talking about, have this you know, opinion of Guardiola, it doesn't necessarily mean that football people have. Yeah, I, I think I do like Ken Early's work. He writes fluently and thinks uh, cogently, but uh, I think he's wrong. The press come and go, as we know. You mentioned Ken Early. Well, yeah. you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily agree with anything Ken Early says about football. Things on an annoying twat. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, what can you, what can you do? Can't please everyone. Rory Smith, great to talk to you on the show as always. Football, fake news, Mazal Bugdov. This all sounds like something you've been working on for quite a while, was it? Yeah, do you know, it's, it's become a bit of a kind of hobby horse. I've probably bored everyone I know uh, <laughs> about it far too much. It's just become a theory that a lot of the kind of a lot of the methods that we've seen reported on and become hugely important in politics and society in general in the last year, I guess, since, since Trump's kind of ascendancy to the presidency. I think a lot of that stuff, the tropes within it, are quite familiar to people who follow football and have an online presence, if that makes sense. So the kind of internet-savvy football fans, I think, are probably used to the methods being used by the, the troll factories and the fake news factories. There's a lot of, a lot of echoes of the way that football's covered. And it's, it occurred to me... I don't know, like six months ago, six seven months ago, when people, when you read all those pieces in in the in the, in the New York Times, in in the Economist, in the in the Times, in the Telegraph, in the Guardian, all those outlets started talking about this phenomenon of fake news, and I sort of sat there and thought, pretty sure we've been dealing with that in football for for about seven or eight years, and I, I finally I spent spent a while sort of thinking about it and talking to people about it, trying to hone my thoughts, um, and then speaking to people who've been involved in the creation of it or in its kind of uh, metamorphosis into legit, legitimate news almost um, and the end result was a piece I wrote last week uh, which to be honest I think only tells yeah like a, a tenth of the story I think there's loads more you could do I think that it's kind of book length the original version I filed to the to my office was 3,000 words and they kind of came back and said mm, you may be pushing your luck a little bit here uh, and they eventually published 1,800 words of it which is pretty good going but there's loads more to say I think on, on the whole subject. Well, what are the kinds of of specific uh, phenomena, I guess, that you that you are talking about seeing now in politics that have been evident um, in in sort of the media around football for several years? Well, so the, the the University of Western Ontario published a list of five things that kind of define fake news. Two of them aren't particularly, to, or to me, don't really resonate. So one is is large scale hoaxes, and obviously Marcel Budov was a large scale hoax. Uh, Duncan Jenkins was maybe not quite a hoax, it was kind of a joke that kind of got out of control. I think Sean Cummins, who created Duncan Jenkins, maybe lost control of where it was going. It kind of it metastasized into something that it was never meant to be. The other type that the university identified was kind of jokes that are willfully taken the wrong way, which I think maybe doesn't necessarily apply in football, but everything else does. So it's facts that are uh, skewed and re- skewed reporting of, of certain facts stories where truth is elusive where where there's two kind of con- contested sides and they are kind of uh, one, one side is emphasised much more than the other and the final one is um, stories that are kind of invented for a, a political or a, for, for a purpose I guess we should say in this case so I think we've seen loads of that in, in politics in the last year whether it's Brexit whether it's Trump whether it's stuff on the left stuff on the right there's there's been loads of it, from the Canary to Infowars. That, that those three things kind of are are fairly common now, and we, we're all learn, having to learn on the fly how to how to interpret them, how to deal with them. But in football, I think that they've been around for a long time, and that although it's in it's in the transfer window that it manifests most, maybe not most seriously, because none of it's not none of it's actually that serious in football, but that it manifests most frequently in, in transfers where you see kind of quotes that are inherently banal from players being used as evidence one way or the other of a sort of grand conclusion. But I think what's really interesting with football is that, and what links it together to me, is that in football you, in football you have this hyper-partisan environment. So and the example I used in the, in the piece was, was a contentious 
refereeing decision that decides a game one way or the other. Both managers, both sets of players, come out afterwards and say that should have been a penalty or that shouldn't have been a penalty. And fans willfully side with their manager or their players to say, actually, we shouldn't have lost that game because it wasn't a penalty or we should have won that game because it was a penalty. And that, that is the basic building block of partisanship in football that there's been famous studies done on it uh, dating back 50, 60 years where you know two sets of fans who watch the same game are asked for their responses to certain incidents within, within the game and they give vastly different accounts of what happened in the match. And that happens to us all. I, the press box at Arsenal is directly behind a set of fans who I am convinced never genuinely believe Arsenal have never correctly conceded a throw-in. And <laughs> we, we accept that, and I'm not, it's not a criticism, that's kind of what being a fan is, apparently. I'm not quite sure that's entirely true. But, you know, it's this hyper-tribal, hyper-partisan environment. And that basically bleeds into... It, that's now what we have in politics, obviously, which is the link. But that hyper-partisan environment bleeds into the way we receive information and the way we interpret facts, which make, makes every single truth totally contested, totally elusive. There is no such thing as truth in football. There is only my truth and your truth, the truth of the fans that support this team, the truth of the fans that support that team. And everything everything is kind of individual and and personalised and bespoke, which creates these gaps, I think, in terms of in terms of how information is presented, what information is presented and how information is received. Basically in tran in, in the transfer market, which is what, what we focused on People believe what they want to believe. They want to believe their team is about to sign this player. They want to believe that this player that their team is about to sign is going to be the final piece in the jigsaw, the one that turns your team from also runs into champions. So you get this slew of information to meet that demand, which in the case of Masal Budov was, you know, Arsenal going to sign the 16-year-old Moldovan prodigy. No one kind of thought to check whether he existed or not, because what was important was that people wanted the story to be true, not whether it was or not. It was the same with Duncan Jenkins. People wanted to believe that this guy knew who Liverpool were going to sign because he kept telling them that they were going to sign players and what people want is for their team to sign players. No one ever really seems to stop and ask, is signing this player a good idea? It's only, you see, it with the, kind of the phenomenon of announced dot, 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 whenever anyone from any club or any journalist connected to any club tweets anything, it's announced Salah, announced Lukaku, announced Bakayoko. People just want signings. They don't really care, kind of, what the signing might do or how good the signing is. It's, there's this demand just for signings. So you have this kind of environment where people are willing to accept all information as long as it's the information they want, which skews the nature of information, I think, and makes it that the value is in the kind of rumour, not, in in, not in the truth behind the rumour. And that's how it manifests in, in transfers. But as I say, at the end of this rambling soliloquy, uh, it probably it manifests throughout football all through the season at any point you could choose any point and say look here is all this stuff that qualified that if it was in politics or economics or, or kind of cultural issues we would be talking about this as fake news as post-truth information but because it's in football it's the accepted currency of the way of the discourse it's the it's the way we talk about it we all know that if you read a transfer rumor whether it's in a newspaper or on goal.com or on you know hot transfer rumors now dot you we all know that 99% of them will never come off. And often that's because people are reporting interest in a player and interest in a player doesn't always solidify, it doesn't always come to pass. But increasingly, I think people just like seeing their clubs linked to players, to be perfectly honest. They like the thrill of the rumour. It's this vicarious sort of enjoyment of what might be in the future. And you have, you've got a market that's, that's been created for spurious information and you've got suppliers who've, who've readily offered that spurious information to fill that niche and that is where we are in football now. Yeah, I mean, this has been the case. I mean, as, you, as you've been describing, this sort of environment has existed around football for, I mean, I, I guess you said seven or eight years. Um, it is a phenomenon, I suppose, of the internet age. Um, although, you know, it's not as though there were, there were never fake uh, fake stories about football before then. There's, there's, a, there's a long um, and storied history of this sort of thing. But I wondered how, how do you think this... Um, this kind of evolution in the environment has actually affected the game itself. Do you do you think that it has begun to change the nature of the game? I mean, I think here of somebody like Jose Mourinho, who seems to be very much a creature of this environment, somebody who's able to exploit the um, the kind of new features that you see around. It seems to me that his ability to do that, to kind of command attention, um, you know, to, to, to shape the narratives is actually the reason why he continues to work at the, the highest level of the game rather than any real, 
you know, training ground or tactical or, or football-related insight? I think he, that's, that's an, a really, really good question and he's, a, he's actually a much more interesting subject than the one I wrote about. But the, yeah, I think, so yeah, transfer gossip and has always existed. You know, you look at repapers in the 1920s, they had transfer rumours in them. Um, and I think that post-truth, as we, what we now call post-truth, has existed in football for a long, long time. I agree that it is a phenomenon emphasised by the internet age. I think there's a massive echo chamber uh, kind of effect in football where you surround yourselves, it started with the forums, surround yourself with like-minded fans or fans of your club, which which heightens tribalism, which makes you more desperate for your club to succeed, which means you are more willing to accept any information that is positive about your club, whether that's signing someone or saying they should have won a game or whatever. So I think that kind of has has amplified the effect of something that has always existed. I think clubs have long indulged in it. I think managers, you know, all those managerial cliches of, you know, we was robbed, all that stuff, that is all kind of post-truthy stuff. When you when you break it down, it's it's the, the propagation of a narrative that suits your ends. And I think you're right, with Mourinho, what we've seen is obviously a very good manager uh, who has been able to harness that environment and to thrive within it to create his own legend. So what Mourinho does better than anybody is shift Although Ferdy, to be fair, Ferdy was pretty good at it. Um, although whether he knew he was doing or, or whether he was just being kind of obstreperous, I don't know. But Mourinho is very, very good at shifting things to his favour, and which all managers do. But what Mourinho, I think, maybe does better than anybody is create a sense of injustice, this sweeping narrative that carries fans along with him, so that nothing, kind of, nothing sticks to Mourinho as being his fault because there's always somebody else to blame. There's always some other kind of discussion to have. And as I say, look, this is a, it's a subject that I said to someone on Twitter, it's book length and it's definitely book length, but the problem is that it keeps, keeps changing. It keeps morphing into something else, mutating. So the, have you seen Donald Trump Jr.'s defense of his emails? Yes. So like Donald Trump Jr.'s defense of his emails is, yeah, I did it, but so that seems to be his, uh, Trevor Noah, I think described him as, as denying it with the air of, or yeah, confessing with the air of man who thinks he's denying it which is it's this astonishing thing to see. And Mourinho has similar similar traits, so that Mourinho will, will sort of say, yeah, okay, we did, we did lose the game 5-0. But, and then he'll launch into some other, t- some other kind of whataboutery of kind of, well, what about this or what about that? Whether, you know, whether it's something legitimate like fixture pile-up or a refereeing decision, or whether it's something completely unrelated. But the tone that he delivers it in is, well, of course we lost, because how could we not lose when this happened? You know, when three days ago, Coronation Street had such a massive cliffhanger. How could we not, how do we expect, we be expected to win? And it's, it's this kind of, yeah, what about me, I think is actually, and it's not an element that I, uh, it, that I wrote about, but that's a, that is a really important element of the way that clubs create this, this uh, bespoke truth that they can continue to kind of believe in as over the course of the season, their own narrative of their own season is propagated by the clubs and by people like Mourinho particularly. Um, who is probably the master at, at doing that, at creating a story that he wants to tell and crucially convincing people that that story is right. That's what Mourinho's really good at. That This idea that nothing, that he cannot fail because his interpretation of the truth is always so convincing and so kind of complete. Yeah. I, I mean, there's so many sort of angles to this in the sense that, uh, I mean, a point that really emerges from the piece or the piece as published in the New York Times is that really a successful story is one that, uh, you know, a certain segment of the audience really wants to believe. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. That what matters is the uh, desire to believe in this thing, uh, and that's what will determine whether a story gets shared a lot. You know, is it attracts a lot of eyeballs. It does almost make you wonder about how this has been working all along. I mean, I have friends who who would argue, say, for instance, that over the okay, we can we can see that over the last few years, immigration has become a big theme of. Uh, you know, public discourse in the UK. Everybody is, oh, immigrants, immigrants, immigrants. Um, and, and that they would argue, well, this is because certain newspapers uh, have been pushing this uh, propaganda for years. This is a huge problem. And these, you know, people are swarming into the country and scrounging off the welfare system. You know, 20 years of this propaganda conditions the audience into thinking this is it, suddenly becoming obsessed with this issue. But maybe it's actually been working the other way all, all this time. Those stories are being fed to an audience that 
is out there that wants they print the stories because this is what the audience wants to hear rather than creating that um creating those ideas in the audience by printing the stories yeah de- definitely without a shadow of a doubt so it's really easy to indulge in male bashing and often it's correct to indulge in denny male bashing and saying look this is a this is poisoning public discourse but with the media generally newspapers in particular probably uh, certainly in this country and, and in ireland um they don't just lead public. They don't, they're not they're just just there to shape public opinion. They also have to reflect it. There's a market necessity that you reflect what your readers want to believe. And what the Mail have hit upon is the fact that you know people in the Mail's readership are bothered by immigration, rightly or wrongly. They are bothered by them. You know, we've all everyone in Britain will know somebody who lives in an, inc- an exclusively white village who voted for Brexit because they don't like Muslims, despite having never met having never met one. You know, the, those stories are everyone has a relative, you know, an older relative like that. And that's not that's they've not been conditioned exclusively by the Daily Mail and the, the, the Daily Express to, to think that even when you take out kind of the, the Mail and the Express's amplified voice, which is, you know, the mail drops at 11 o'clock at night in, in central London. The, the you know, the, pr- the producers on the Today programme decide, right, the mail's flashing on this, we better talk about that. So it's not just male readers who are influenced by what the mail says, it's everyone who listens to the, to the, to the Today programme, and then everyone who listens to Five Live or whatever, and the talk shows and the TV shows, and all, you know, it all has this massive effect. But the mail, the mail wouldn't have continued down the line of, of endlessly bashing immigration if readers weren't responding to it. So it's not that they've created a fear, it's more that I guess they've, they've noticed the fear, and they've then ravaged that fear to really kind of make hay out of it. There's a market function to, to privately owned newspapers that, that is kind of lost in that debate that if people aren't buying it, that buying the argument that you're making, then they're not buying the paper. That's fairly simple. So, you, you know, the mail could have chosen, I don't know, window cleaners as the great scourge of British society. And people would have been like, well, no, come on, lads, that's not not very sensible. This doesn't hold up. If you choose immigrants, it works because that is something that people or, you know, that there's enough people who already believe it. So I think there's definitely, yeah, there is definitely that, that function of shaping public opinion, not denying that at all. But that shaping is only reflecting a trend that probably already exists. I wonder what you think um, about this uh, kind of from an ethical point of view. Um, I mean, if we have to... Uh, Maybe we, I don't know what people think the media necessarily is. I mean, old-fashioned ideas would be, well, the media is a kind of an institution that tries to figure out what's going on and, you know, tell people what the, the facts are. Uh, a more, maybe a more cynical interpretation would be the media is a thing which exists to construct, you know, to manufacture opinions, to, to a, a kind of a propagandistic entity that wants to persuade people to think a certain way about uh, certain things. But maybe it's actually now just a sort of a dream factory that's, that whose primary role is to kind of fill out the fantasy lives of its consumers. You know, if uh, just to just to tell people stuff that they maybe want to hear as they um, sort of meander along through the world in their personal bubbles of delusion. Well, it's, so you'd never ever use the, the phrase. I mean, I don't know when you heard the first first heard the phrase echo chamber, but for me, it was probably three or four years ago in in the context of Facebook and the newsfeed and algorithms and Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter and all this stuff. But there's no greater echo chamber than people who read the Daily Express. And I'm telling you, none of them are on Instagram. That is not that is not the problem. That, that Venn diagram is just two circles. Because all if you read the Express, all you're getting is the validation of your own views sort of hollered straight back at you. And that, that without, without a shadow of a doubt, does happen that certain certain media organizations fox in the states is a brilliant example have taken it upon themselves to project a view back onto people who already hold it and what you get is this incredible kind of i'm going to use the word yet again amplification of a point of view to me the media is there to record what's happened and to explain the how and the why that's what the media does um i guess we've in from newspapers to zoom in on newspapers they probably have to realise at some point that they have moved beyond the stage where newspapers themselves can tell people exactly what has happened and their kind of market function now is to explain the how and the why. That's what newspapers do better than anybody. But the media as a whole is there to kind of to shed light. That's what the media should do. Democracy dies in darkness and all that business. Uh, but I think increasingly they, there has been a tacit or possibly explicit, I don't know, I'm not sufficiently senior, uh, acceptance that 
the way to survive in the modern media marketplace, saturated as it is, is to say to people, right, we we offer, we are a lifestyle choice effectively. And certain broadsheets, the Guardian have done it brilliantly. To, you know, it's it's now a symbol of your left-leaning intellectualism. If you if you are carrying a copy of the Guardian, or if you've got the Guardian app on your phone, just as it's a symbol in Middle England of kind of being a right-thinking sort of person to read the mail. And you know, Daily Mail readers don't think of themselves as massive racist they don't sort of wake up in the morning and think, oh, you know i'm i'm quite racist actually so i should probably read the mail that's not how they identify at all they think that it speaks common sense it's for people who value common sense um and i think maybe the the shedding light element has been lost a little bit i think certainly over the last year since since the brexit referendum in britain there has been a I was really surprised that the right-wing press in Britain after Brexit didn't think, do you know what, we've got our win, now we have to make sure that you know what, what happens is for the good of the country. They seem to think, we've got our win, what else can we make them do? There's a, a great Mitchell and Webb sketch about toothbrush salesmen talking about making people brush their tongues because it's the only way to shift more, um, shift more toothbrushes. And I think that's what the Mail and the Telegraph have done. They've thought, right, we can make this country brush its tongues. But the, the crucial thing that links that again back to football is distrust of the media, which has been, I think, much slower to manifest in general life than it has in football because of the the lower standard of truth that people have come to expect from transfer rumours and because of the partisan environment. So a lot of the abuse that journalists get on Twitter is purely and simply, to me anyway, and this is only a personal theory and it may well be wrong, feel free to tell me if it is, because as a journalist, you will go to a match and you will write a match report which says Manchester City were terrible today and deservedly lost 3-1. But that's not what fans want to hear. What fans want to hear is Manchester City, Manchester City actually played brilliantly today and they were robbed by a corrupt referee. And so you get this, and equally, transfer rumours, there's, an, there's an acceptance that there's this weird code and that you might hear things that aren't true in transfer reporting, that it's gossip rather than fact. And that's created this huge distrust of the media among football fans, partly through necessity and partly through demonstrable truth, that that the media is lying, whether it's because the media wants to sell papers or because the media hates your club. And I think that is the other crucial ingredient for a post-truth environment, where you can say, look, these sources that we're getting our news from are not accurate. They are not to be trusted. They are They are working to an agenda, whatever that agenda might be. And that has, has existed in football in a kind of low-key, quite not especially malicious way for quite a long time. And it's now that we're seeing that in, in politics and in other sectors, of much more important sectors of society, where you're getting that echo chamber effect, that those bespoke websites like the Canary, because they will give you the, the Corbyn news that you want to hear, not anything else. They'll just give you the bits that you like. They'll spin everything into, the, into a positive. That's what football fans are like about their clubs. They don't want to hear the negative. They, they only want to hear the good things. Yeah, James Pearson, Liverpool Echo, gets so much abuse <laughs> for reporting that Liverpool aren't interested in certain players, as though it's his fault, as though he's gone to Jürgen Klopp and said, oh, Jürgen, you know, that Lionel Messi's rubbish, you don't want to sign him. It's, it's completely, on one level, insane, to be perfectly honest. All right, Rory, I think that's the surface successfully scratched. We'll have to get you back on probably on this one in the future. Brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Not a bother at all. The first minister's name, Kieran Murphy, our second captain, and John Henderson, former Kenny, and Wigner Herder. Thank you both indeed for that. Uh, that's our lot for today. Just one headline: the British Prime Minister Theresa May is to meet the Taoiseach and the Kenny in London tomorrow. This morning, she's at Stormont meeting Martin McGuinness and uh, also Theresa. Sorry, I've lost that. the first minister's name. Arlene Foster. Foster. Thank you for that. Excellent stuff from Rory there. I feel like I kind of sat that one out after asking the initial question, but I was <laughs> I, I was engaged, Ken. I was greatly enjoying your conversation with Rory. Any more to add before we... It's inter- It's really out? interesting, isn't it, as Rory was saying? I mean, look, like this... You know, when you, when you compare what's happening in, in America or, or even in the UK at the moment with this, with what's been going on in football for ages, you know, the, this whole idea of the Washington, the liberal elite press, you know? That's been a thing in, in in football for as long as I remember being interested in football. For as long as I remember following English football, fans of, of uh, northern clubs have complained about the London media. Yeah. And and the way they overrate all their players and don't don't come to matches in 
you know, up in Liverpool or Manchester, and always. A, and I suppose the culmination of that all that fake news was Scott Parker being named Football Writers Footballer of the Year. Scott Parker owned a nice lad, uh, but Footballer of the Year he was in 2011. That is kind of. Strange. I mean, come on. I mean, have you ever heard such nonsense? Solid lad. Uh, Scotty Parker was playing for. Wasn't he playing for Tottenham that year? Yeah, I would, I would have thought so, yeah. Um, before he went to West Ham, I mean, he's had such a, he's kind of played for so many London clubs, it's hard to remember what year. I mean, the, the PFA player of the year in 2011 was Gareth Bale, who would have been there at all the same matches that Scott Parker was at and would have been sitting there in front of all the same football writers. But, you know, where is Gareth Bale from at the end of the day, Owen? He was actually uh, Wales, Ken. Gareth Bale is from Wales. Or was Scotty Parker at West Ham he was that at West Ham, just reading it here. Yeah, was West... that the, the heroic season they got relegated, but he went down fighting? Uh, you're asking me follow-up questions that I don't have an answer to. <laughs> um, let's, let's check this out. Eleven Premier League table. Uh, we can check it out here, yeah. I want, I've got some more Didier Baptiste news to get to people before we go. Would you want to continue with this? Uh, league table. West Ham United, bottom of the league. Bottom of the league. Uh, and I guess... Uh, Scotty Parker was. It wasn't. It certainly wasn't his fault. He did everything he could, and he apparently and he, so. He uh, he gave a few um, gave a few decent interviews. Uh, as well as Bale, Parker also pipped some high profile names to the award, including West Manchester United captain Nemanja Vidić and Man City forward Carlos Tevez. <laughs> like Tevez, <laughs> Vidić, go home, guys. You know, forget it. Scott Parker was the was the white light. So that was uh, that was an example of the media willing their fake news into uh, into reality for a moment but you know i mean so many things just just that whole the, the kind of the the partisanship that roy was talking about you can see it all having existed in this kind of imaginary sphere where it's it's inconsequential in a way it's interesting to see it moving into a consequential sphere i mean even the you know i was reading recently about like the taxonomy of of um, at the moment say uh, pro, the pro corbin pro corbin twitter you know, slugs and melts and all these kinds of different words that are used to mean different things. I think to myself, Joey Barton was saying, this is, this is how Joey Barton used to speak on Twitter. He was anticipating all this by, by like six years. He was, uh, he was on a slug and melt before, uh, before any of them. I should have been taking more notice at the time when I was just letting it wash over me. Gerard Houllier's Liverpool dodged a bullet back in 1999. Really? When they missed out on the signing of Didier Baptiste. Didier Baptiste. He ended up leaving Hartchester United in disgrace, Ken. Oh, no. After accepting a bribe to miss a penalty against Spurs in the last that's game of the season. Really, that's shocking. Which, to send the club down, missing the penalty would send the club down. It was all part of Prashant. Where had he come from Marseille? Was it Marseille? Did no. Monaco. He had come from Monaco, yeah. Of course, and after Monaco, we were, were done over in the early 90s by Marseille. You'd mm. think he'd have had... I suppose if you can't beat him, join him. He did end up going to Marseille from... Harchester United. I'm not surprised. Rather fittingly. I'm just not surprised at all. <laughs> but Come is, home, Didier. This is all part of Prashant Tatani's Machiavellian plan to take over the club from Linda Block. I've took up some footage here again from the final day of Harchester United's 99-2000 season. There's tense stuff. So the scene here on the pitch, Didier Baptiste is forcibly ripping the ball from the grasp of teammate Luis Amor Rodriguez so that he can take and miss the crucial penalty. In the boardroom, the penny has just dropped for Linda Block, who previously said she'd only ever sell the club to Prashant Tatani if they were ever relegated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the reason that it just never works, like just fantasy set in the world of football doesn't work. Uh, mean, what are you talking about? We've got a clip. Let's play it. And they're still squabbling over the You ball. won't get away with this. Whoever takes I've done nothing. Hopefully Didier will score the penalty and uh, you will still own a premiership team. Okay, you win. I'll sell you the club. What? I know when I'm beaten, I'll sell you the club. For 25 million. Well, uh, but only if we stay in the premiership. If we go down on keeping it, it's mine. Absolutely no sale, is understood? <laughs> no buts, those are the terms. <laughs> she only wants to sell the club if they stay in the Premier No, she's just reversed it on him here. So what, what's happened here, Ken, is that Linda, previously she had said, look, I'm not selling you the club, or maybe if you got relegated. Oh, if you yeah. got relegated, I'll sell you the club. How about that? Yeah. Then he sets about trying to get the club relegated. Uh, and he enlists the help of Didier Baptiste to get them relegated. Okay. The penny is just as as Baptiste is taking the ball off. Start. He's he's a defender. Remember. Yeah. He's taking the ball off Luis Amor Rodriguez, great Spanish striker. Yeah. So the only reason to do that is to clearly deliberately miss. Linda Block realizes that and goes, "Okay, I'll tell you what. Now I'll call. I'll I'll, I'll call you here. Yeah. If this team stays up, then I'll sell you the club. 
at which point the music starts there's a big long musical montage yeah. and Prashant runs streets, sprints down the stairs to try no. to get the message across no yeah there is it's a big no and the manager looks and goes what's he on about here and Baptiste goes yeah I know I'm supposed to miss it's fine <laughs> ends up missing it but thankfully uh, Luis Amor Rodriguez is on hand to e- uh, he, he, he either bundled home the rebound or scored shortly afterwards but uh, the club was saved and off Didier Baptiste went to Marseille <laughs> what <an laughs> absolute fitted. load of nonsense yeah. and you see I don't think it really can really compete with something like um, to the best football sports in the world <laughs> where are you remember that <laughs> D- uh, Delia Smith, Delia yeah. Smith I mean how can you how That's can you write a fictional uh, it's a, a fictional uh, scene which is as funny as that. You can't actually do it. It's, there's no point in trying to do a soap opera about football because the, the actual thing itself is already that. So there's no there's no need to do a fictional version. Ah, yeah, still the actual version. There were a few good years in the early days, though. Let's be honest. Dream team. Thanks again. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much for listening. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Take care. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.